0: everyone. We're coming to the end of our season in the book of Hebrews as we have celebrated week after week from the beginning of the year the powerful truth that Jesus is greater and that life lived out day by day in Jesus can be summed up in one word. It is greater. There's never been anyone who compares with Jesus and you cannot improve on the life he gives, on the life he empowers us to live. It is the superlative life. Now, our series from Hebrews will conclude next week, and next week is Easter Sunday. Yes, someone has said that Easter Sunday is the church's Super Bowl, and that's true because it is the singular event on which everything else depends. And you tell me, are there words in human speech Any words in human speech that compare with these words from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20 and following. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. That one portion of a verse is like a blast on the trumpet of God. It's the greatest fact in human history in a statement. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first crop of the harvest of those who have died. In other words, He's the first one who has died, come back to life, never to die again. Since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead came through one, too. In the same way that everyone dies in Adam, so also everyone will be given life in Christ. Each event will happen in the right order. Christ, the first crop, of the resurrection harvest then those who belong to Christ at his coming and then the end when Christ hands over the kingdom to God and next weekend on Easter that is our climactic message in this series the theme of our Easter worship service a greater kingdom when Christ hands over the kingdom to God the Father when he brings every form of rule every authority and the power to an end. And most of us have family members, maybe children, maybe parents, maybe a brother or a sister. Most of us have close friends, neighbors, who've never really heard this life-changing, destiny-altering truth. The message may have bounced off their eardrums, but they never have really heard it because you haven't heard it until it changes your life I wonder who might respond if you particularly you invited them Christmas and Easter those are the two times of year when people are most open to an invitation to visit church and the yard signs that we have at the doors and the cards that we have at the doors are to assist you in extending that invitation to someone God's love could become real to someone as he or she experiences the celebration of Easter. And Jesus could draw someone to himself if they were in a place to experience seeing him lifted up. And that's what we'll be doing one week from today at the Ford Center. One phone call from you, one text message from you, one personal invitation from you. That's all it might take. For someone in your circle of influence, your circle of friendship, your circle of acquaintance to find new life in Jesus. Now God's word admonishes us to let the redeemed of the Lord say so. His word charges us to acknowledge Jesus before people. His word compels us to speak the things that we have seen and heard. His word reminds us that we are to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. His word teaches us that we're to declare the wonderful deeds of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And his word warns us about being lukewarm in our devotion to him. So let's be inviting. We've got seven days between Palm Sunday today and Easter Sunday next week. One more high-priority item. I hope you've all heard that we're having special children's activities and a service at the Children's Museum of Evansville Easter morning right across the street from the Ford Center we have rented that facility and we have a hundred volunteers who will be working with our children and they have all been recruited they are all committed we are in a good place to welcome we hope 400 plus children to the Children's Museum of Evansville next Easter Sunday and folks I know this is not the best way to recruit But our need is acute and you know how desperate we are or I wouldn't be mentioning it this morning but we need help with servers next Sunday. So please, please, if you are able to sit upright and take nourishment, if you're able to stand and even limp, we want to ask you to go to the registration station in the atrium immediately after this worship service and sign up if you can help us. In the words of Uncle Sam, our army of servers needs you. This means you. So our schedule next Sunday, here it is. Here's our schedule for next Sunday. Get up at whatever time you need to. Then be downtown by either 8.30 or 8.45. Find a parking place if you've got children. Nine o'clock. Drop them off at SEMO. We're thinking half-hour segments here. 8.30, park your car. 9 o'clock, drop the kids off at SEMO. Walk across the street, 9.30. The pre-service music starts, and you know how rich that will be. You know how great that will be. And then you'll be right there. 10 o'clock, we begin to worship with 8,000 others in the Ford Center. I'm excited about it. I hope you are too. Let's not let Easter become commonplace and let's not let Easter at the Ford Center become commonplace. This is an exciting time for us, the one time a year that our entire church family is all together in one place and you'll just be blessed by walking in the room and looking around. I'm excited about it. I look forward to it. I hope you do as well. Will you pray with me? Father God, Lord, for the next seven days, we want to We want to seize this moment before Easter Sunday when we know that many people are thinking perhaps more than any other time of year about death and life issues, the things that really matter. And we want to invite them. We want to invite them to join us, to worship with us, to taste and see that the Lord is good. And we want to serve them well. We want to serve them with warmth, We want to serve them with excellence next Lord's Day. So help us, Lord, to do our best, to give our best, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, Patrick's exceptional message from Hebrews chapter 11 motivated us to embrace a greater faith. That's what it was last week, a greater faith, as we looked at the names of men and women who demonstrated the power of faith through the things they suffered, And through the rewards that they receive. Now, this morning, we are in Hebrews chapter 12 to be challenged to make, it's on the front of your worship bulletin there, a greater commitment. Now, the scripture passage that I read just a few moments ago is one of these great moving passages in the New Testament. But it also constitutes a perfect summary of the Christian life. And keep in mind that this letter was directed to Hebrew Christians, admonishing them to be grounded, admonishing them to be firmly established in the greater life in Christ. Just a few verses there in Hebrews chapter 12, four verses give us this clear and succinct formula that reveal to us how we can all be finishers, how we can all persevere, how we can remain faithful no matter what we may face in life. And here's the first part of that formula. It says that we are to remember the witnesses. That's in the first part of chapter 1 there, and I'm going to reference the New Living Translation because it colors it up, makes it a little more penetrating. Here we go, chapter 12, verse 1. We are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith. Now, the Greek word for witnesses here, in verse 1, is the word martis, from which we get our English word, martyrs. So as we run the race of the Christian life, we bear in mind that we are surrounded by martyrs, those who pay the ultimate price by dying for their faith. And it's got to be a reference. It's got to be a reference to the ones he's just mentioned in chapter 11 of Hebrews. You remember what it said about them? They were tortured and refused to be released. They faced jeers and beatings. Others were put in chains and prison. They were stoned, sawn in two, put to death by the sword. Destitute, persecuted, mistreated, refugees, wandering in the desert and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. And what was their crime? Their crime was their devotion to Jehovah. And there are countless others through the centuries that have passed since then who have sacrificed their lives for believing in Jesus right up to the present day. In fact, just a few days ago the world reacted in shock as ISIS released a new video showing militants beheading a group of 21 men. What was their crime? They were people of the cross. But it's so common now that it barely gets mentioned in the media when this happens. Although this past week the House voted unanimously, did you see it? 383 to 0. I don't ever remember a time in my life when the House voted unanimously on anything. Maybe they did, and I wasn't paying attention. But this past week it happened, 383 to 0, to declare that ISIS is committing genocide against Christians. Must be pretty serious for the house to be unanimous in its condemnation. Kristen Wright is the director of Open Door USA. This is a group dedicated to helping believers facing persecution around the world. And she writes that 2015 has gone down in history for having the highest level of global persecution of Christians ever. In their most recent list of 50 countries, where believers face intense persecution, 40 of the 50 are suffering under Islamic extremism. Number one on the list of persecuting countries is North Korea, where it is a crime today to be a Christ follower. And in North Korea, Christians are punished in unspeakable ways. And we don't have access to media there. We don't know what's going on there, but we can use our imaginations So are you mindful of these martyrs? These martyrs that are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 from Bible times and those today living under extreme persecution today. Are you moved with compassion to pray for them? And does their devotion inspire you to greater personal commitment to faithfulness? Now some Bible scholars believe that these witnesses sit in a heavenly grandstand to watch us while we run the Christian race so what about our faithful family members and our friends who have died in the faith well i think about my dad i think about my grandmothers i think about my grandfather collins i think about my brother-in-law bill i think about my good friend nolan my mother-in-law and my father-in-law are they watching me from heaven right now Now, personally, I don't believe our departed loved ones see our actions here. I do believe that somehow they know when a loved one is saved and they rejoice with the angels in heaven. But I don't believe the Old Testament saints and the New Testament believers who passed on into the greater life watch us from heaven as we run the Christian race. I mean, how disheartening would that be? And we know that there is no heartache in paradise. When it says that we're surrounded by a great crowd of witnesses, it simply means that we are among a great host of witnesses, many of whom have suffered, who've lived by faith, died for their faith. And we should think about them. And we should realize these people on the other side of the cross, they lived by faith, they suffered for the faith. They often laid down their lives for their faith in God. And then we should also think about all those on this side of the cross who've run well and have died faithful. And if we truly want to be reunited with our saved loved ones someday, we must remember them. We must think about them, be inspired to imitate their faith. Here's one other thing you and I will one day pass from this life on earth. Will you take your place in this crowd of witnesses? Will your mindset now, today, will your values that you're living by right now, today, will your words, your vocabulary, today, will your disposition, today, will your life choices, today, will they become the inspiration for your children? and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren to know the Lord and love the Lord? Will they remember you and be inspired to live a God-honoring life? Will they think about you and want to know the Lord and love the Lord? Secondly, a greater commitment requires that we not only remember the witnesses but also that we remove the weight that's in the latter part of verse one there let us strip off every weight that slows us down especially the sin that so easily trips us up and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us well it was November a year ago that a group of us from the church traveled to Italy and Greece and Turkey. And one of our ports of call in Greece was the ancient city of Olympia. That's where the Olympic Games began. They originated in Olympia, Greece. And those games were held every four years from the eighth century B.C. And I learned something that I did not know about the Olympic Games in the earlier days, that women were not allowed to participate. Women were not even allowed to attend the games as spectators. And it's for a very good reason, because the male Olympians competed in the buff. (laughs) While athletes would train, heavily laden with weights and clothing when they got ready to compete here's what they did they removed all the weight to be able to run unencumbered in fact I just learned this past week never knew it before the word gymnasium comes from the Greek word gymnos which means naked now you ought to learn something every week when you come to church I I hope this isn't it now we're more modest today Thankfully, we're more civil these days, but my point is that the ancients would have understood this illustration of stripping off every weight. The weight the Hebrew writer is referring to here is the weight of sin that would hinder our spiritual growth, that would limit our effectiveness as far as our personal witness, our personal testimony. So if we want to run the race of the Christian life well, if we want to receive the victor's crown, we cannot be hampered by anything that will slow our progress. And he references a specific category of sin. He calls it the sin that so easily trips us up. (laughs) Other versions call it the sin that just won't let go or the sin that easily entangles. And here's the one I like. It's from The Message. It says to strip off the parasitic Now, you know what a parasite is. A parasite is an organism that lives on or lives in a host, and it it gets its food from or at the expense of the host. And parasites, or they are nasty, and they can be hard to get rid of. Parasites can be hard to get rid of. I got a few uh, few pictures of these varmints up here. We'll flash up on the screen. That's what a bed bug looks like. The fact that I could be sharing my bed with something like that. just And then there's head lice, of course. And then I think we've got scabies. See what he looks like. And then tapeworms. I was convinced I had one of these when I was a teenager. But uh, roundworms and pinworms. And these are some of the the Parasites. Parasitic sins are easily besetting sins, the sins that easily entangle, sin that trips us up, the sins that won't let go. These are like parasites that hold us back from spiritual health and spiritual vitality. What are we supposed to do with them? We're supposed to get shed of them. We're supposed to strip ourselves of them. So what might that mean for you? I tell you, you cannot experience a greater commitment if you're holding on to a secret sin this morning. So where are you today? What if you could get a victory over the sin you've learned to live with? The sin to which you've learned to be accustomed, the sin you have learned to tolerate. Can I suggest some of the secret parasitic sins? Here are some prevalent sins that trip people up. According to an online forum, That includes testimonies by real people. These are real people that sent in these these testimonies about the sins that they struggle with. Here's one. Adultery and fornication. Thaddeus writes, I chased, bedded, threw away, and hurt many women. I saw them merely as physical objects for my own sexual gratification. I lied to them, even telling some of them that I loved them and would marry them when I had no intention of doing so. I justified it in my mind, thinking I deserved these affairs. But as they went on, it stopped being pleasurable, And it became outright misery. Was this the Lord? He asks. Then Ginger writes about her parasitic sin of gluttony. Here's what she says. Drink drugs, overeating junk food when I was anxious or bored, living from one party to the next, one vacation to the next. I was totally addicted to gratifying my senses. I never told myself no until the day God got my attention when my health broke. Then Bart writes about his anger. Bart writes, I used to get so angry at people anytime I felt personally affronted by their behavior or comments my fists would ball up and I would fantasize about smashing their faces. Road rage was a big problem for me. It was so bad. I literally gave up driving I was afraid of what I might do my worst moment was fighting a perfect stranger on a train just because I thought he tried to stare me down and he needed to be put in his place reading and reflecting on God's Word has really helped my anger management and I am so glad to have rediscovered him but I know this will be my toughest sin to totally quit And then Nancy writes about lying. She says, I always seem to have to tell people what they want to hear rather than what the truth actually is. In social settings, I always have to tell a better story to keep people from getting one up on me. What is the matter with me? Why can't I stop lying? I've accumulated so many secrets. I don't know what I'll do if I am found out. I know how important the truth is to Jesus. He is the truth after all. It's so discouraging. Now, as I read through these testimonies online, I thought I thought all of these are action sins. But Jesus focused more on attitudinal sins that are really the things beneath the surface that create the action sins, so the online testimonies are all about action sins, but Jesus is more prone to confront attitudinal sins they 're more common they 're more in the category of the parasitic sins i 'm talking about here that we tend to rationalize, and there are five sins that Jesus most often confronts, and they are these number one hypocrisy, seven times in matthew twenty three Jesus pronounced woes on hypocrites. And then in Acts chapter 5, you remember a couple in the early church named Ananias and Sapphira, they were struck dead for pretending to be generous when in fact they were really covetous. Jesus confronts laziness. Very often Jesus judged those who were slothful in his parable of the unprofitable servant. That servant was judged by his master Because he did nothing in service while the master was absent. He took the master's money, dug a hole in the ground and buried it, dug it up and returned it to him when he got back. What did he do with all that time? He was on R&R. He was lazy. And Jesus confronts pride. The proud and self-righteous Pharisee in Jesus' parable, he despised others even in his prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not like others. That's pretty brazen. I think the greatest vice on earth is pride, and if it is, that means the greatest virtue in heaven is humility, and in the book of Revelation, even those who receive crowns in heaven are quick to cast them down before the Lord, recognizing that He alone deserves glory. And Jesus confronts indifference. When the leaders in the synagogue did not want Jesus to heal a man on the Sabbath day, Mark chapter 3, verse 5 says that Jesus was deeply disturbed by their indifference. Their indifference to human need. And in Luke chapter 16, Jesus told about a man who went to the place of torment after death. Why? Because he was indifferent To a suffering starving beggar who died just outside his window and Jesus confronts ingratitude Jesus was critical of the fact that when 10 lepers were healed in Luke chapter 11 only one only one returned to give praise to God the ungrateful person receives from the Lord but does not give to the Lord Giving is the most substantive expression of gratitude. Ingratitude, ingratitude says, all I have been given is for me, for me. And Karl Barth said, radically and basically, all sin is simply ingratitude. Ungrateful people are not generous with their time, and their talent, especially their treasure. So will you be intentional about removing With the weight today, will you strip off the weight today? Will we once and for all commit to stripping away both the behavioral and the attitudinal sins that we've lived with for too long? Let's get rid of these parasitic sins once and for all, the ones we've lived with for years and years. Have you struggled to the point of shedding your blood? That's what it says in Hebrews twelve four in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. It's pretty extreme. Well, after we've remembered the witnesses and removed the weight, we have got to take the final step to experience a greater commitment, and that is to rely on Jesus. It's in verses two and three. It says, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. I like this, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith because of the joy awaiting him. He endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now, he's seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then, if you do, you won't become weary and give up. In the Olympic races, the eye of the runner was fixed on nothing but the finish line. The Greek verb here is found in only one other place in the New Testament. When it tells us to keep our eyes on Jesus, it's only found in one other place in the New Testament. It means to look away from something and to look to something else. So we look away from all else that is in the world around us and we look to Jesus in the Christian life he is our example and Jesus was Jesus was far sighted he saw clearly through the immediate crucifixion to the joy that was ahead of him so he could endure the harsh suffering he could endure the cross disregard its shame i'm telling you never had any person so sensitive a heart as jesus And the cross was a humiliating thing. It was for criminals. It was for those who were considered the dregs of humanity, and yet Jesus embraced it. He accepted it. So if Jesus could endure suffering like that, so can we, so can we, so must we, regardless of what we experience in this life. Jesus is not only our example, he's also our presence. He's, he is at once the goal of our life journey and he is our life companion along the way. He's the one whom we go to meet and he is the one with whom we travel on our way to the meeting. The wonder of the Christian life is that we press on, surrounded by saints, keeping our eyes on him who walks with us and the one who will welcome us when we reach the end. And as we come to our time of communion now and our servers go to prepare, I want to remind you of what day this is. This is Palm Sunday. This is Palm Sunday of Holy Week that will culminate with Easter. The most significant events in human history happened during this week that we call Holy Week Palm Sunday today, Easter Sunday next week and so there's the triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem this week is the garden of Gethsemane, the upper room the garden of Gethsemane and the cross of Calvary and that's where I want us to be in these moments, around the Lord's table, because of what happened on the cross. Listen folks, Jesus faced the devil in person and all his demons and all the emissaries of hell and all the cohorts of the damned, and yet when they pressed in on him, With foul breath and grotesque faces. And when they reached out for him with bony fingers, the Son of God cried out from the cross, It is finished. We just sang about it. He had the last word, It is finished. The Greek word telestai, which also means I have conquered the captain leading his victorious army from the battlefront into the city out front, shouting, to Telesti, it is finished. The battle is finished. I have conquered. He had the last word. And on this Palm Sunday, which begins Holy Week, we want to remember that he set his face to go to Jerusalem, knowing that on Friday of that week he would be subjected to suffering and death In your place and in my place. And communion is our time each week, the first day of the week to resolve, to fix our eyes on Jesus. Why? So that we won't get weary and give up. Just like the Hebrew believers, the Hebrew Christians, we're prone to get weary and give up some of you in this assembly this morning your spiritual life if you charted it on a graph has just been fits and starts because you've regularly succumbed to weariness you've given up from time to time fix your eyes on Jesus today we invite you to participate in the Lord's Supper this morning if you're a Christ follower take a piece of bread take the cup of juice meditate you Partake when you are prepared, but this morning, will you be empowered to remember the witnesses and to strip off the behavior and attitudinal sins that that will trip you up if you don't get shed of them? Will you prayerfully rely on him to experience greater and greater commitment to him? Pray with me. Father on this Palm Sunday, we anticipate the week ahead. And at the same time we look back at the events that took place over 20 centuries ago, the donkey, this the symbol of humility that Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem, the palm branches and the garments of the people laid in the streets as expressions of praise Hosanna in the highest later that week the upper room with the table and the bread and the grape juice and the basin and the towel and later later that night the Roman scourge the crown of thorns a sick a stick for a mock scepter, and eventually the cross. The cross that belonged to each one of us, and yet Jesus took our place there. He died in our place. And today, we want to remember him. In his name we pray. Amen.